Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Dennis. And I, too, would very much like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. It's a pleasure to have all of you on the call today. Uh, today's program is uh, it's a Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop update from the 2022 American Society of, Clinical, uh, American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. And um, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech and Pharmacyclics, LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. really want to thank them for their support of today's program, and for many of our programs, actually. Um, I would like to acknowledge that we have over 259 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Brazil, Canada, Cape Verde, Colombia, Iraq, Ireland, Lithuania, Mauritius, South Africa, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So truly it's a, a bit of a, a global call. It is a global call actually. So we're delighted to have you all on the call today. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin, and Dr. Martin is Chief Lymphoma Program, the Richard A. Stratton Associate Professor in Hematology and Oncology Medicine, while Cornell Medical College, Associate Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin will be addressing an overview of blood cancers in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, and disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on lymphoma. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's uh, always my pleasure to be here. Uh, I'll start quickly with an update on uh, the state of COVID-19. Over the past couple of months, we have seen roughly a doubling of the incidence of reported cases of uh, COVID-19. There may be a higher number of, of cases that are not being reported, but we are clearly seeing a surge uh, in some parts of the country, and uh, that does also include a slight uptick in uh, rates of hospitalization. This is nowhere near as high as other uh, surges, including um, surges we saw in the summer and especially last uh, year in the winter. Uh, but it is it is on the rise, and we are seeing um, increase in hospitalizations as a result. Uh, key changes that make this um, uh, uptick a little bit different are that the monoclonal antibodies that we have used in the past to prevent and treat uh, COVID-19 appear to no longer have significant activity against the uh, current dominant variants that are uh, circulating. Uh, so those are uh, no longer essentially being offered as treatment or prevention. Uh, fortunately, the antiviral uh, therapies, Paxlovid and Remdesivir, uh, do continue to have activity, uh, so that's important. 
And probably the most important thing that people can do is to um, vaccinate themselves. The updated bivalent vaccinations are effective against the original versions of COVID-19, as well as the more recent uh, BA subvariants of uh, COVID-19, BA4, BA5. Now, there is a, a newer subvariant, the BQ1 subvariants that are um, now overtaking the BA4 and 5 subvariants. And uh, experts believe that the vaccine has activity against uh, BQ1 subvariants, but um, don't know how much activity is there. Um, so still recommended to uh, get the vaccine, but there is uh, some uncertainty uh, regarding the degree to which it, it's pr protective uh, compared to the way it was clearly protective against uh, older subvariants. Okay, so I will, um, I'm sure our, all of our colleagues on the call also have uh, their thoughts on COVID-19 and it may differ from region to region, but uh, that can be a topic for discussion later on. I'll move on to the recent uh, 2022 American Society of Hematology annual meeting, which took place this last weekend. And in the field of lymphoma, there are three things that I would like to highlight. Uh, the first is um, uh, the ALPINE trial. The ALPINE trial was a randomized phase three controlled uh, clinical trial, an international clinical trial in people with relapsed or refractory uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So these were all people who had received previously chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And the treatments that were offered were um, either ibrutinib or zanibrutinib. Both of these drugs are approved by the FDA for treatment of CLL in the United States. Uh, they're both very similar, um, but zanibrutinib is uh, a little bit newer. There had not been a head-to-head uh, trial comparing these two drugs in chronic lymphocytic leukemia before. There had been one in uh, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia-related lymphoma. Interestingly, um, you know, many of us, I think, believe that all of these drugs were similarly effective and that the primary difference between the drugs was that the newer drugs appeared to have a uh, better safety profile with fewer rates of um, certain adverse events, including uh, bleeding or atrial fibrillation. What this trial found, and the reason why I wanted to talk about it here, was that um, in the patients who received xanabrutinib, more of them remained free from progression at two years than those patients who were randomized to receive ibrutinib. Now, relatively speaking, two years is not very long follow-up in a disease like chronic lymphocytic leukemia where people are uh, typically living for two decades, not two years. Um, but this was a surprising result, as I mentioned, because in general, we think of this class of drugs as being similarly effective. Um, and in this trial, as I say, the xanobrutinib was shown to be superior. There may be different reasons that account for that difference, including if a drug is better tolerated, maybe people are able to remain on that drug for a longer time and continue to benefit from it. And that likely explains some of the improvement we saw here, but there may be other reasons as well. And I think as time goes on, uh, we will continue to learn more about um, uh, these drugs in this, in, in this context. Now, most patients in 
in the current era are now receiving these drugs as initial therapy. Um, again, uh, this trial was only done in people with previously treated chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and I don't know that you can necessarily ex extrapolate this to um, newly diagnosed patients, but it's possible that you could. And uh, I think we're likely to see a rising use of uh, zanabrutinib and declining use of ibrutinib over time, although ibrutinib remains an excellent drug, and I still have many patients with various different lymphomas receiving ibrutinib, and if they're tolerating it well and they're doing well, I don't uh, see any reason to change them. The other uh, trial that I wanted to mention is um, abstract number one, meaning it was arguably the biggest uh, uh, abstract or most important abstract. There are all, many things that are important, but this one... Uh, sort of led the way in the plenary session of the American Society of Hematology meeting, and it was a randomized phase three controlled clinical trial done in Europe in people with previously and in, in people with newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma. For the longest time, people with mantle cell lymphoma who uh, were younger and able to tolerate it received chemotherapy followed by an autologous stem cell transplant, which is a fancy way of giving a high dose of chemotherapy and uh, followed by three years of um, maintenance rituximab. Uh, in this clinical trial, there were three different arms. The long and the short of it, though, was the question of whether autologous stem cell transplant could be replaced by the BTK inhibitor ibrutinib. And indeed, that's what the trial did appear to show with only three years of follow-up. So again, not not a very long time in the context of a disease like mantle cell lymphoma where people are living many, many more years than that. But with three years of follow-up, uh, people who were randomized to receive ibrutinib did not appear to require an autologous stem cell transplant. I think this essentially um, is uh, suggesting that many of us can forego high-dose chemotherapy and mantle cell lymphoma and focus more on some of these newer, better tolerated drugs and I think, as we have seen in chronic lymphocytic leukemia before it, I think slowly over time we'll be moving away from chemotherapy altogether and more towards these newer, better tolerated drugs in mantle cell lymphoma. So that was, for me, um, a, a big highlight. I have a big interest in mantle cell lymphoma, and this was a trial that I've been looking forward to seeing the results of for the past uh, five years. Lastly, not so much a trial as it is a disease or a, a treatment. Um, and these are the bispecific antibodies. Bispecific antibodies have existed for a while. In fact, one is already approved in Europe. Um, bispecific antibodies uh, typically in, in oncology will bind to a tumor cell with one arm of an antibody, and the other arm of an antibody will bind to a T cell or an Activate, active um, arm of the immune system, it will activate that T cell and then that T cell will go ahead and kill the tumor cell. And uh, a few years ago, we started to see some of these drugs enter into the clinic and they appeared to be very active. It is clear from this um, year's ASH meeting that these drugs are going to be a very big deal in virtually every disease where they every version of lymphoma where they were tested, they have clear activity, including in people with some of the worst versions of lymphoma. Uh, many of them were able to obtain complete and durable remissions even after stopping 
the bispecific antibody. Uh, in fact, they appear to be so active that uh, many of us are beginning to question whether CAR T cells, which were a huge uh, rage just four years ago at the American Society of Hematology meetings, whether they will continue to have a, a future by specific antibodies are easier to give and just as active. Now, I don't know uh, whether that's going to be true or not, and, and it's great to have all of these options, but these by specific antibodies are showing activity in uh, diffuse large B cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma alone in combination with other drugs, and we're likely to see them show up more and more and more and more in the future. And I think for me that is uh, very exciting. I got into the field of lymphoma uh, 16 years ago because of my interest in monoclonal antibodies, and it's uh, great to see them uh, doing as well as they are right now. I think that's uh, it for me. And the world of lymphoma right now, and I'll turn it back over to Dr. Meissner. Standing, and you really set the tone for today's program to some extent, and um, I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is um, Dr. Ruben Messa, and Dr. Messa is Executive Director, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. Mays Family Foundation Distinguished University Pres Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, Mays Cancer Center, and an NCI Designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Mess will be addressing disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs, and the role of precision medicine in clinical trials. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. Hello. Well, a pleasure to be here and picking up from where Dr. Martin had left off. We're going to pivot our focus now to disease-specific updates. Uh, I will be covering the myeloproliferative neoplasms, <clears throat> which are a group of chronic leukemias that can affect patients in a variety of ways. And we'll be talking about three of them, essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, and myelofibrosis. So in 2022, essential thrombocythemia we primarily have treated with an aspirin uh, and then in individuals in which we need to use medicines to control the counts to decrease symptoms and the risk of blood clots and bleeding, we have used medicines such as hydroxyurea, pegylated interferon, or anagrelide. Uh, this year's ASHER's updates on medicines in development. So first, long-acting uh, interferons, ropegylated interferon alpha 2b, which is approved in polycythemia vera, is in phase three clinical trials for ET and may have benefits in terms of both controlling counts and trying to delay disease progression. Additionally, there's new agents in development, including one called BAMADEMSTAT, or IMG7289. This works against the disease in a different way, but that may be complementary, uh, and that it is a pill. And in studies from Europe, Shows for individuals that had failed hydroxyurea, it could be very helpful in helping to control the disease. Polycythemia vera is a cousin of essential thrombocythemia. Uh, here, again, individuals have too many red blood cells, symptoms, the potential risk of blood clots or bleeding, or progression. Historically, we have treated individuals with uh, phlebotomy, taking blood off, with hydroxyurea, or uh, pegylated interferon alpha 2A, 
for ruxolitinib as second-line therapy. So several updates. First, uh, the approval in uh, November of 2021 of ropegylate interferon alpha-2b and further data at ASH 2022 showing its safety and effectiveness against the disease. Second, new classes of medications called hepcidin mimetics. These are medicines that simulate inflammation in the body that decrease the number of red blood cells that control the increase in red blood cells in, let's say, a more uh, hopefully safer way that doesn't require phlebotomies, helps to control iron, helps to improve symptoms, and protect against blood clots and bleeding. Uh, so a lot of excitement about this new potential class of medications in polycythemia vera. <clears throat> now next, myelofibrosis. The greatest number of drugs are being tested in myelofibrosis, although it's the rarest of the three because of the severity of the disease. So roughly, there are uh, around 300,000 patients with ET and PV and around 20 to 25,000 patients with myelofibrosis. So in the ASH plenary session, so these are these six abstracts that have been felt to be the most important scientific discoveries of the meeting. One of these related to a new medicine that is not yet in clinical trials, but that is for myelofibrosis and ET potentially. And in early laboratory studies and the studies with mice, this medicine that is an antibody against a protein called calreticulin that can be abnormal in ET or myelofibrosis uh, looks very promising and that it might be able to target just the abnormal cells that are involved with that mutation and the disease and then spare the normal blood cells. This is the sort of what we say in medicine, the specificity of only impacting the abnormal cells and sparing the side effects of, of having the normal cells affected. So clinical trials are anticipated from this medication produced from insight and will be of great interest. Now, in the therapy of myelofibrosis, patients are treated typically either with stem cell transplant in a minority or medicines. We currently have three approved medicines with updates at ASH, Ruxolitinib approved now well over a decade. Fedradinib approved since 2019. And there was good data presented at ASH showing improvements uh, or that um, uh, with this medication, it can be given safely and long-term safety data from ongoing clinical trials being reassuring. One of the uh, rare but serious side effects that can occur with this medicine is something called Wernicke's encephalopathy or a type of confusion with low levels of vitamin B1. And they showed that with replacing vitamin B1 and monitoring that, that side effect largely can be controlled. Second, pacritinib, approved since February of 2022 for individuals with low platelet counts. Again, very favorable data, as well as data suggesting improvements in anemia in individuals that take that medication, as well as helping to be safe for individuals with low platelets, and data showing that the reason for that may be some of the biological effects of the pacritinib against an anemia pathway called ACBR1. 
Next, there is a JAK inhibitor that is on the cusp of being approved in 2023, a medicine called mamalotinib, one I was involved with, that can help to improve spleen symptoms and anemia. And we presented a variety of, of abstracts showing everything from durable responses in earlier studies, the momentum study, with well, uh, almost a year of benefit and climbing for individuals treated with that medication. We saw uh, good safety signals, the potential that achieving transfusion independence may prolong survival, as well as patients who switch from ruxolitinib to mamalodinib may have improvements in their anemia. Finally, tremendous interest in a whole range of different combination approaches to therapy that patients may benefit from. Typically with a JAK inhibitor as a base, there are probably almost 10 different drugs either being used in combination with ruxolitinib from the time of diagnosis or when individuals go on medicines or as add-on medicines or even as single medicines after JAK inhibition. And these range from medicines to be used in the frontline setting. Those further so long in development are, you could think, uh, having an impact on the disease in a variety of different pathways. Medicines like pelabrecid that inhibits one pathway called the VET pathway, or parsiclicid, PF3 kinase, or Nevitoclax BCLXL. So more information that could possibly relate in just a handful of minutes, but I want to leave you with a sense of tremendous hope with all of these new medicines, and we will have more precision medicine as we understand how best to use them in individual patients. And with that, let me hand it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Messner. That was an outstanding presentation, just a wonderful content, and um, I so appreciate your you're always giving such a robust presentation. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Matthew Butler. Dr. Butler is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mays MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio. And Dr. Butler will be addressing new research presented at ASH and disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on multiple myeloma. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Butler. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me. I, I really, uh, it's an honor to be part of uh, these programs and I, I think they, or I hope they're helpful to people. Um, so I uh, was also at the uh, annual meeting this year, the first, first time in person in a, a few years. And so it's exciting to be there and there's always just a flood of of information, um, uh, you know, we look for the big headline-grabbing uh, developments, but it's also just inspiring to see how many people um, are working away in labs, making smaller discoveries, and, and doing the, the hard work that adds up to these big breakthroughs. Um, in multiple myeloma, uh, there there were no uh, Huge announcements at the meeting itself. There were there were no um, uh, plenary session presentations uh, on this disease, but I think the reason for that is that the big uh, developments in myeloma in recent months were so big that they couldn't wait, and they ha they happened in October and November. And of course, there was a lot of buzz and, and 
discussion at the meeting about about the implications. So um, I'll, I'll talk about two of those. We we gained a new drug for myeloma, and then we lost a drug for myeloma, um, which happens less often. Um, and uh, and then I'll talk about a few uh, smaller things, but still interesting uh, that that did come out of the meeting. Um, so for a, a little over two years now, we've had an approved drug called Belantamab or Blenrep. Um, it's a drug that I was using in my practice, and I, I found it useful. Um, it's something called a uh, an antibody drug conjugate, meaning we take a chemotherapy molecule that's quite toxic, but we attach it to a, an antibody, and antibodies have a way of um, uh, of homing in on a, on a particular target, a particular protein um, that we, we happen to know is on myeloma cells and, and not, not found on most other cells. And so um, we've, we use a lot of antibodies to target cells in this way, but uh, a little more exotic is using this strategy of, of attaching something to it, uh, like a chemo molecule. And um, so the early research was quite promising for this drug. In November, we got results uh, from another ongoing clinical trial called the DREAM3 study. Um, when a drug gets fast-track approval, um, it's always conditional on more research that's still happening um, coming along and confirming the results. And uh, in this case, the, the results from DREAM3 were slightly disappointing. Now, to me, they, were, they still looked pretty good, and I was surprised that this was enough uh, to get the drug withdrawn, but it was. And, and um, the drug uh, voluntarily, after some discussion between the company and the FDA, the drug was, uh, was withdrawn from approval. Um, which means that no new patients can start unless they're on a clinical trial. And uh, patients that I have been treating with this uh, are having a harder time getting it, and, and now we're looking for other alternatives. I still think that uh, belantamab is a, a, it, it is, has promise, and I think that as we learn more and get more results from, from these clinical studies, um, we'll find out just how effective or, or not it is and uh, how best to use it. And what that's probably going to mean is if it, it, it will work better combined with other medicines than it will on its own, uh, because that's been the case for almost every other myeloma treatment that we use is, is the, the real, um, uh, the, the big benefits are, are found when we combine things in the right way. But for now, um, belantamab is, is, is not something we're using anymore. Um, but um, uh, you've heard today about this new uh, approach to immunotherapies for cancers called uh, bispecific antibodies. Um, this is a big innovation. Uh, we've known it's it's been coming. It's been in development for some years, and there's actually one bispecific that's already been in use for a few years for a certain kind of leukemia. Um, but in myeloma, it's been on the horizon for quite a while, and now it's finally um, available to us. Uh, outside of clinical trials, and that's a, a drug called teclistamab that was approved by the FDA at the end of October. Um, so, uh, uh, the, as you've, we've talked about it already today, um, bispecific antibodies are a way of finding that the, the cells that 
that are uh, the disease, the cells that we need to get rid of, and finding other cells in the body whose job it is to, uh, to attack uh, invaders and to, get, and to, to destroy things that aren't wanted. Um, and, the, and the trouble is that they're not able to recognize the myeloma cell as being bad. Cancers are very good at, at hiding and cloaking themselves and making and looking like um, like their normal cells when when in fact they're not. Um, and so we can use these antibodies to kind of bridge the gap to stick to, on one side to stick to the cancer cell and on the other side of the antibody to to have another receptor that's sticky for the uh, for the T cell that and if it can grab those two and pair them together, then the T cell will re, will will kind of go into its attack mode and destroy the cancer cell. Um, and these are showing uh, really encouraging uh, response rates. Um, well over 60% of people treated with this drug um, uh, sh showed a response. And these are uh, folks who have already had a lot of other treatments for myeloma uh, and, and they've stopped working. Of course, those that, that do have a good response to the drugs that we are already using don't need something like this because they're already doing well with available treatments. But we're always looking for, for new things to, to fill in the gaps for, for the people that the current options aren't effective, and this looks like it's going to be uh, a good one. It's a little bit tricky to give. Uh, we have to start it in the hospital, and so um, th there's a bit of uh, logistics involved, and I'm still put, putting those plans together to start uh, giving this drug, but I certainly think it's... Um, at least as good and probably somewhat better than the drug that we lost. Um, there's still a lot of discussion about CAR-T, and uh, I, I think CAR-T treatments are, really are uh, an outstanding option for people who need them and for people who are able to get them. Um, and there was more you know, new updated data from the, the two big CAR-T studies in myeloma, um, but they didn't change the, the picture that we already had, which is um, most people who get these treatments respond, and uh, a lot of those responses last a long time. And, and in fact, we don't know how long they can last. We hope that for some people they last forever. Um, we're still, you know, still watching those studies and still watching the new numbers when they when when they're reported. But um, the, the 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 big obstacle to CAR T right now is it, it, the companies that make the products are not able to make them fast enough. Um, they have to be made for each individual patient, and that that uh, just inherently takes some time, and uh, and so people sometimes have to wait to get them, um, and there and there's systems in place to try to make sure that they're they are given to the people who need them the most, um, and hopefully they'll, the availability will improve as more and more as the companies can produce more and more of them, and also as more centers. Uh, become able to give them, and, and we're an example of that. We're working hard to build a cellular therapy program so that we'll be able to treat people with these. Uh, we, we don't have that open yet, but we're hoping um, that uh, within one to two years we will be doing it. Um, so those are the those are the the big developments. Um, more minor things that are that caught my eye as a myeloma doctor. Um, there's, there are more and more studies uh, being done with minimal amounts of steroids. We've used dexamethasone for many years to treat myeloma, and, uh, and by itself, it's better than no treatment at all, which when it first came along, that was, that was the, the context that it, that it came up in, is it was, just, it was something that would help the disease. 
but it helps it in very minor and very short-lived ways. And as we've got so many better drugs now, the question is, do we still need to be giving it? And so a study was done in, uh, in older folks who uh, sometimes have, a, have problems with steroids, have side effects, they interfere with sleep, and they cause problems with blood sugar, especially if someone is diabetic. Um, and this study only gave steroids for the first two months, and then it just stopped them. And, um, and, it, that's the, and, and didn't see any, anything bad happen, still saw good, good outcomes, good responses. And, uh, and so that's encouraging, and that just fits into a, a broader trend that a lot of us are doing in practice, which is trying to back off from steroids or at least use them at much lower doses than we used to to cut down on the side effects. And then the final thing is um, we, we use a drug called lenalidomide or Revlimid as a maintenance therapy. We use that for almost everybody with myeloma. Um, once, you, once you get to a remission, um, this drug helps to keep you in remission. And, it, and we think that it, it, it does that for a long time, but uh, it's hard to do studies for a long time. Uh, so, so up until um, now, most of the data we had for doing Revlimid maintenance only only went out went up to two years, and after that, it was a bit of an unknown how much if, if it continued to help, and if people needed to keep taking it, or if some people could quit. Um, we thought that it, it's a good idea to continue, and and most people have done that, but we've done it without really good science. So the science is starting to catch up, and and indeed, um, we now have an analysis that shows that past two years into the third year and into the fourth year it's pretty clear that staying on Revlimid uh, helps to prevent some people, uh, you know, some portion of the people that, that might otherwise relapse. Um, it still gets fuzzy when you get out to five years. It's, it's a little unclear, but, uh, but it certainly supports what we've been doing, which is if I have someone who's on this drug and they're doing well and they're not having side effects, I don't see any reason to stop really ever um, because uh, the longer we can stave off a remission uh, or stave off a, re a, a chance of a relapse, the longer it is before we need to start talking about these more exotic and, and comp complex treatments that, that, uh, that I started with. Um, and of course, the longer you wait uh, to need a treatment like that, the better the treatments get. And so uh, remission is always the best, best place to be. So, um, those are the, the, I think, the highlights that would be of interest to this group. Um, but uh, uh, I, if anyone wants to ask questions about some of the more arcane stuff, I'm happy to try to answer. Thank you so much, Dr. Butler. That was really, um, really an outstanding presentation, very stellar. And I know people will have lots of questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much, as always. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is Leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Weil, Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on leukemia and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Oh, thank you, Carolyn. And uh, it's a hard act to follow with uh, my colleagues on the call. And so, and I have a broad area to to cover, but I want to focus as as one of our my other colleagues did on just a few topics um, in in leukemia, is both acute and chronic. Um, so the ASH meeting is is a fantastic meeting where we generally see um, 
most of our colleagues update as much as they can in basic science and clinical practice and research. Um, and you know, sometimes we're we're um, anxiously awaiting data from trials that we know about. Um, sometimes we we're aware of data, and sometimes we're not. And and um, certain data will rise to the level of what we call practice changing. And uh, you know that probably says it all. If if a, a presentation changes the way we take care of patients with a certain type of cancer, that's a big deal. Um, and I think we had two practice changing um, presentations in acute leukemias. I'll start with AML. We had a lot of good presentations regarding um, updates in the way we treat AML, which really has come a long way, particularly when it comes to using less intensive chemotherapy or chemotherapy that has a, a different side effect profile, particularly um, the drug called venetoclax, and venetoclax in combination with medicines developed prior to that called hypomethylating agents, um, and, and now with targeted drugs. So what, what's happened is we're moving away from a intensive chemotherapy approach to a modified chemotherapy approach, which is as or more effective, and adding different elements to it to try to really do the best we can. But, you know, we had, we've had simpler questions. We know that allogeneic stem cell transplantation is a treatment option that is very important in AML, and many patients require an allogeneic transplant or, sh or should be um, seeking an allogeneic transplant as a curative approach to AML. And the simple question that was put forth in a research study presented by a group in Germany was, if someone has had chemotherapy for AML in the standard sense, and they haven't gone into remission, or maybe they've, they've um, had sequential chemotherapy and their leukemia was very quick and quickly relapsed, so what we call relaxed, relapsed or refractory AML. This, unfortunately, is a, is a situation we get into a lot. It's still treatable. Um, it means we have to move on to what's called salvage chemotherapy or chemotherapy to rescue um, someone to try to get them back into remission. Um, so if you're at that crossroads where someone has AML that hasn't responded to chemotherapy or, or um, quickly relapsed, um, what do we do if, if allergen A transplantation may be in reach, if it's something that patient can go to? Do we work very, very hard to try to get them back into remission? Or maybe we accept the fact that the leukemia may not be in a full remission and use the transplant as a way to try to treat the leukemia better. That's always been a strong hesitancy. But something called the ASAP trial, which the name says it right there, and ASAP is just what you're thinking, as soon as possible um, trial, looked at this question in uh, over 250 patients, I think around 280 or so. And um, these were patients who had um, access to transplantation. And these were patients who didn't have um, good response to their initial chemotherapy. And in some of them, the um, transplant was pursued quickly, ASAP. And rather than going to an intensive chemotherapy regimen to try to get them into remission first, um, they went to what was called disease control therapy. Chemotherapy, which wasn't necessarily light, but was more, um, it, it was lighter and it was better tolerated um, and it was geared towards just using it if needed to maintain whatever control the leukemia was, was suitable in order to bridge the patient to transplant, as we say. The other patients went the other typical pathway where we use an intensive chemotherapy regimen, um, a combination of classic chemotherapy drugs, um, mitoxantrone, cytarabine, which is a difficult regimen um, to, to tolerate for some patients, but it's one of our most effective ways to get leukemia 
into remission if it's been tough the first time or fell out quickly prior to transplant. Those patients also um, were the next step for them was an allogeneic transplant, but of course they, they, they had the time built in where during the chemotherapy and the recovery, so we knew that they would be going to transplant later. And remarkably, these strategies um, were similar. Um, the, the, um, the benefit of intensive remission um, um, or induction, trying to get people into remission, um, was, um, was it didn't result in, an, in a greater overall success rate and it didn't actually help people survive longer. They, they looked at how many people got to about two months after transplant in a complete remission, and it was very similar. They also looked at the overall um, success rates, and they were very similar. Um, and that was really big news, because we now feel in the field of AML, we can l use this approach of not necessarily feeling we have to pursue intensive chemotherapy to get someone in remission if they have a suitable donor and if a transplant is deemed to be um, likely to be you know, uh, feasible, successful. Now, there's a lot of caveats that um, this didn't take advantage of the newer drugs we have, which could be used to help get someone back into remission without as much risk. So, so that's a big caveat. But I think that's a, that was a bold question and it was answered pretty clearly, and that's a practice-changing finding. Let me move on to ALL, where we had another practice-changing um, abstract. Um, the, um, the question here was, when patients with um, Philadelphia chromosome negative ALL go through chemotherapy, we were able to get high fractions of both children and adults into remission. And after a remission and then an, what's called an intensification, we look pretty carefully to see if they have measurable disease or minimal residual disease meaning have we cleared the leukemia mostly from the blood and as, as, as far as we can see, but when we use detailed testing, do we still see evidence of it? And in order to help um, that scenario, um, many different strategies have been developed. And a drug called blinitumumab, which is a bispecific T-cell engager, we heard a little bit about that in one of my earlier speakers. This is an antibody that targets um, ALL cells, which is um, the other part of the antibody is targeted to, to uh, pick up a T-cell and you essentially bring a cell that can kill a cancer cell right next to the cancer cell itself, and you facilitate the meeting, if you will. So blinitumumab was, was used for people whose ALL had relapsed or um, who had um, a difficulty getting into remission and, and was, was safe and effective. It's an interesting drug given by, in, by a steady infusion over several weeks. And the question in this study called the, uh, the, the, the 1910 trial, which was done in the U.S., in the cooperative group system where doctors in the U.S. worked together to answer these questions, they said, let's add this drug um, to patients who have actually a good out, a good, have had a good outcome from their chemotherapy to see if we can do even better than we're doing now. We know we would want to use it in people who had um, residual disease, um, but asking this question deliberately in the middle of the sequence of chemotherapy to see if it would do better was important. And they Again, this was a game changer. They, they showed that um, the blinitumumab helped patients um, who were already in good response to chemotherapy do even better than they were expected to. It's probably going to diminish the number of patients or um, re really diminish the number of patients who might need allogeneic stem cell transplantation, which is a direction we've been moving in in ALL. Um, and so it may seem like it's more therapy, but it's actually more therapy for the long-term goal of having to give less therapy by, by means of extended chemotherapy or 
chemotherapy in the setting of relapse, which is not uh, obviously um, our best case scenario, or transplant as a way to uh, a necessary means to cure someone of ALL. So again, um, a practice changer, which was fantastic. Um, in the last minute or, or two, I'll, I'll talk about, I wouldn't say practice changing yet, but very exciting news from chronic myeloid leukemia. So we had a drug our, our approved called Asiminib. Um, now, not that long ago, but um, last fall, and that was the, the, an approval. We haven't, hadn't had an oral targeted drug approved in CML in many years, and this was a new class of drug in chronic myeloid leukemia, which is targeting a specific protein called BCRABLE, and it does it in a similar fashion than the other drugs we had, the other um, five drugs we had approved. But this was targeting a different region. Called them the, uh, it's called an allosteric inhibitor, or targeting the Mirastoil pocket. It's called a stamp, really, uh, specifically targeting the Mirastoil pocket. Um, and this drug was brought from where it was approved in the after people had had two medicines or, or more and needed um, a new new treatment, and where it performed really well, better than its competitor called Basutinib. Um, right into the front line. It was a trial called the um, ASCEND trial. It was a smaller study, roughly 100 patients or so. But um, this showed us <clears throat> what we've been hoping for in CML is that can we break the so-called glass ceiling? We, we had data many years ago from using panantinib for patients at diagnosis in CML, but the study was closed early because of side effects, and we didn't want to put people in harm's way um, in exchange for greater chances of remission and success necessarily if that balance wasn't right. And I think Asiminib is showing us um, in the ASCEND study that patients are getting into remission very fast, higher fractions. Um, and in fact, the study had a, an option to build in where you'd get a combination of medications. The beauty of Asiminib is you could combine it with some of the drugs we have available today because it works by a slightly different mechanism, and that wasn't even necessary. So very good news across the board um, there. There were a lot of um, you know, other um, important abstracts, but I wanted to highlight those three uh, because I think the two in AML and ALL were practice changing. That is not necessarily needing to use intensive chemotherapy for patients with AML um, in the setting of a, a, a failure of induction or relapse um, after uh, immediately after induction, and in ALL to use blenitumumab as a way to improve the long-term outcomes for patients. And in CML, Asiminib um, has been a, a, a huge advantage. In the last moments, um, Carolyn asked me to, to give some advice on quality of life and how to bring questions to the healthcare team. You know, first off, um, our healthcare teams often have um, tools we can use, uh, questionnaires, patient-reported outcomes is what it's called, becoming hugely important and should be part of most um, clinics. Um, and quality of life isn't something to um, push to push aside or to uh, leave to the last moment or as an afterthought. It should be a, a primary thought. A lot of our therapies are geared towards improving quality of life. For example, in Dr. Mace's area, myeloproliferative disorders. Um, in my area, you know, we look carefully at the drugs we give because their success rates are so high in chronic myeloid leukemia, but we want quality of life to match that. Um, so I, tell, I encourage people to keep a diary about side effects and symptoms. Um, have, a, have a friend, family member, loved one, and a person who can help because sometimes reflecting someone's symptoms and their the weight of therapy is, is important. It's sometimes hard to express yourself what it may be, how it may be affecting you, but a loved one, spouse, wife, friend, caregiver can often really give a practitioner a better sense for how someone's life might have changed because of a therapy, and perhaps we can allow us to deeper, more deeply explore 
what changes we can make or how we can optimize things to still get great therapy but not diminish quality of life. So keep a diary. Phone a friend, bring a friend, bring, bring, bring someone who, who can reflect back for you. Ask questions and ask if there are any tools because, you know, um, a quick, quick checklist, you know, done every, during every visit can really show you your progress or your, any declines in this area quite well. And there are some really great instruments out there that we can use. So I'll stop there and, uh, and pass on back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mora. That always is a stellar presentation, really wonderful. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, so thank you so much. You're very helpful. And now we're going to move on to questions. And I'm going to ask Dennis to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to take, try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Dennis? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. At this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question. Um, this one, I'm going to start with, um, with Dr. Morrow, and others may want to weigh in on it. What is your recommendation regarding whether people who got first Evusheld doses earlier this year should get another now, given the anecdotal evidence suggesting that the latest subvariants are evading the Evusheld as well as the bivalent COVID vaccine? Um, thanks, Carolyn. So, you know, ironically, I don't have a population that uses Evusheld very much, and I bet you my lymphoma and CLL colleagues have a lot more. So I think, first off, Evusheld is, you know, it's indicated in only, you know, some of our hemological malignancy patients. I often get asked about, shouldn't I be getting it because I have CML or I have a blood cancer? And that's not always the case. We've seen, for example, in MPNs and CML that many of the medications we're using are safe and don't cause immune, significant immune compromise. Um, there are definitely CDC and um, clear guidelines from infectious disease regarding how to best dose Evershield, and it has re required sequential dosing. I'm going to turn it back over to the rest of the group because they may have more clear answers. I'm happy to jump in there. This is Peter Martin. We, uh, we received guidance from our hospital epidemiologists that we're no longer offering Evershield because it's just not active against the newest subvariants. So um, I suspect that's probably true across the country. That even if you wanted it, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to get it, and it's not considered to be very effective anymore. It, it was clearly very effective in the past, but but no longer. So now the primary mechanisms of protection are related to vaccination and and all of the other things that we do on a daily. Thank you. Um, and uh, a question then. Uh, uh, for uh, Dr. Butler, are you aware of any research around the length of, if any, of immunity for folks testing positive for COVID in the last one to two months? Is immunity less robust and durable compared to that resulting from disease from earlier variants? Uh, so uh, these questions come up a lot, and uh, I don't have a a any uh, certainty in the answers. Um, you know, COVID immunity has been studied a lot in the general population. So we know how well vaccines work. We know, you know, we have good data for Evusheld. Uh, we know that having an infection does provide some protection, but, but not um, complete protection and probably not as, you know, certainly not a substitute for vaccines. Um, and translating that to uh, the the 
blood cancer population um, is really a challenge because uh, it, from from the outside world, uh, you know, blood cancers are, are are a group of people, but to us, there are many groups of people. There, in fact, there are countless individuals who have their own uh, unique disease, and then also their treatment history. And um, I, it, it it seems to be more a function of treatment history. In other words, when I'm you know trying to advise someone on the risk and how much how how you know worried to be and how many precautions to take um someone who's been on uh some of the medications that I use for myeloma for example daratumumab um is is probably a, a lot more immune compromised than someone who's who's just on observation or who's on uh Revlimid maintenance or or something else that doesn't suppress antibody production uh as well um but uh, you know, I I I always voice some caution. Uh, any patient that I'm seeing virtually, uh, I think I think should be a little more careful than than the average person, um, and and not assume that they have quite the same level of protection from vaccine. Um, but you, you have to temper that with uh, you know life is getting back to normal and, and we don't want our patients to live in a bubble just because they're, they, they have this diagnosis. And um, uh, so uh, I think vaccines are imperfect. They've always been imperfect, but they're still great tools and they're the great, the best tools we have. And, and uh, that's true of, uh, of blood cancer patients just as much as it is for everyone else. And, and, uh, and so I'm always in favor of vaccines. Uh, I agree that Evusheld um, probably has passed its usefulness, and uh, you know there, there's interest, there's work being done on a new version of that that'll cover the new variants. Um, but uh, I, I guess I don't have a simple answer because I don't think anyone does. Uh, we, we don't know. And I'm going to ask all of our speakers to just give a takeaway from today's program, uh, starting with Dr. Martin. <clears throat> I think my my takeaway from the lymphoma side is that bispecific antibodies are are clearly going to have a role in the clinic, and um, I'm really looking forward to this era. Uh, uh, I think they're going to have a huge impact on patient outcomes. Excellent. And um, and Dr. Butler. My takeaway is actually very similar. I think bispecifics are, are a great new class of drugs with, with huge promise uh, for both lymphomas and myeloma. Um, CAR-T is also uh, promising, but it's a lot m more complicated. And, uh, and so, it, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping that, that a lot of patients may not even need CAR-T because uh, of these new things that we're getting. Excellent. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. And now I do want to go back to your questions. We didn't, we weren't able to take everyone's question. So um, please uh, realize that um, we want you to take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. So even if you asked a question today, and of course we've assumed you've learned something today, please take what you've learned and your questions back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the best and they know all about your particular um, medical situation, which is really important. 
Um, also, uh, for those, we don't want anyone to leave today's program feeling you're alone. We want you to know that you're now connected to um, many services, both at your cancer center and also through Cancer Care. And you can contact us on our helpline, 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org and take advantage of all of our services. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This includes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.